When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this podcast about? You think it would be about board review and getting medical pearls, but that's not what this podcast is. This is all about wellness. This is all about happiness. This is talking about great stories. This is informing patients and people that, hey, warning about certain diseases, talking about screening, and talking about things that you may not understand. And today we have an awesome guest, someone who I truly enjoy being with here at USC, someone who's super smart and someone who's going to be talking about neurosurgery stuff. That already sounds intimidating, but he's such a cool dude that he's going to make it simple to, for everyone to understand. So today's guest is going to be Dr. Zada. I just love that name. It rolls off the tongue nicely. And let me read his bio. So he is a neurosurgeon dash scientist and professor of neurological surgery, otolaryngology, and internal medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC, and that's in LA. He is the director of the USC Brain Tumor Center and co-director of the USC Pituitary Center and USC Radio Surgery Center. He is a NIH-funded research scientist whose laboratory focuses on brain tumor genomics and medical device development. Dr. Zada serves as an associate program director of the LAC-USC Neurosurgery Residency Program. His clinical expertise is in minimally invasive and endoscopic cranial and skull-based tumor surgeries. Dr. Zada completed his residency training at USC and fellowship in Indo, endoscope, pituitary, and skull-based surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He has authored over 200, God, that's a big number, <laughs> peer-reviewed publications, and also serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Neurosurgery and Journal of uh, Neuro-Oncology. I took out a lot of his stuff because he has too many accomplishments. I kind of going to summarize this part I really like, his philosophy of care. So that's for all my listeners that love the Dr. Raj podcast. He was quoted as saying, requiring a visit to a neurosurgeon or undergoing a neurosurgery operation can be, 
you know, one of the most frightening and life-changing experiences a person will ever have. Placing myself in the patient's shoes is the most important thing I can do to provide the best advice and care for any patient and any family member who I interact with. I believe in providing the safest and most effective care for my patients. This is founded on the principles of evidence-based medicine, research, and latest techniques. My goal is to offer the safest and most effective surgical procedures for my patients until we reach our goal of developing a cure for every subtype of malignant or benign brain tumor. With that being said, Dr. Zada, thank you for being here. Dr. Raj, it's a pleasure to be here. We wanted to do this for a long time, I think, and uh, have a lot of similarities. So I'm very uh, pleased to be here today. I know we're only doing the uh, the audio here. If you could see the video, uh, folks, we're like images of each other. He needs to get a little darker. Uh, I'm going to do a screenshot here. Just uh, we look like like twins from another mother here. Yeah, no, totally. Before we go, we need to do a screenshot. We'll, we'll put that one up there. We'll start laughing. So, hey, we have to do the meet and greet kind of stuff. So let's hear about your background first before we dive into what you love the most. So what was your major in college and when, when did you kind of know you wanted to be a doctor? I'm going to do that backwards. I, uh, <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was probably nine or 10 years old. I remember for Hanukkah one year, the only gift I wanted from Costco was a medical encyclopedia, like a one, one volume book that I saw. <laughs> that I, just, I was so intrigued by the pictures and my mom bought it for me. It was $9 at the time. And, yeah. and I just looked through it for the next several years without understanding barely a word. And <laughs> I have always been so fascinated by the human body and that kind of knew I wanted to help people and be a doctor. I have not had doctors in my family. So I, uh, I went to UC Berkeley and I majored there in molecular and cell biology, but they have an emphasis in neurobiology, which is what okay. I, that was what launched me down this original trajectory. <laughs> so after, you know, you're in med school, there are many pathways to choose from, you know what I mean? Why neurosurgery? Did you have some fascination with the brain? Did you like procedures? What was your thought process in going there? I've always been really fascinated by the brain and the brain mind connection and a philosophical cognitive science standpoint. I would read about it in even late high school, early college, but I didn't know what I wanted to do other than go to med school and probably something brain related. And what really set me on this course, Raj, is Mm -hmm. I had a professor at Berkeley named Professor Marianne Diamond, and she was an anatomist, a neuroanatomist. And she was famous because she studied Albert Einstein's brain when Einstein died in the wow. 1950s. She actually studied his physical brain and, uh, and she was a pioneer of neuroanatomy in the, you know, for a woman in the fifties and sixties, yeah. this was unheard of as a PhD. Uh, she was really a trailblazer and she taught graduate level neuroanatomy, but allowed me to audit the class as, a, as an undergrad. She taught neuroanatomy like it was kindergarten. And I was Uh, you know, I've never enjoyed learning so much. I knew I had to do something related. And then for me, it was whether I wanted to do something surgical or not, which I did not learn about till med school. And after being exposed to some of the neurosurgeons and having really good mentors and seeing what they do, um, it was an obvious decision for me to go into neurosurgery. Now you surgeons like stand quite a bit. And so I I had the opportunity to like do a couple of procedures with the the CT surgeons, you know, the the thoracic is on the lung dude. Yes. I, get, I get back pain doing that much standing. How's your back, Gabe? Is your back okay? 
great over, you know, over time you develop this musculature that uh, in your haunches and your core that after years of standing that I, fortunately I'm okay. I have had neck issues over the years in the past, but just from looking down, but that, yeah. that's more for, I think spine surgeons have more of that. So mm. luckily neck and back is okay now. Okay. I, but I hear you, man. I hear you. <laughs> you know, today we're going to be talking about endocrine stuff. And for those who don't know what endocrine means, that means hormones. So how do you combine being a neurosurgeon with love and hormones? Can you explain that to my audience? I've always been really intrigued by brain tumors. And, um, and, and the mentors I've had in neurosurgery have mostly been brain tumor surgeons. And among those, even if you can imagine even a smaller subset, many of them have been pituitary surgeons. And what that means, uh, just for our listeners, uh, the pituitary gland is considered the master hormone gland. It's located just beneath your brain, kind of behind the eyes uh, at the base of the skull, but it controls your thyroid function, your stress hormone function, a lot of your sexual hormone function, um, a lot of hormones related to pregnancy and lactation and social bonding, fluid regulation, so many important things. So a lot of the hormone systems in the body are regulated by that. And in this really tiny area of the base of the skull, um, which is few cubic centimeters at most, you know, the size of a, of a big olive, um, you have this pituitary gland, but um, you have your visual pathways, you have major arteries, um, and you have bony anatomy, and then very important brain anatomy, which is the hypothalamus above that. And it's this really amazing kind of confluence of systems where it comes together. And that's always really intrigued me. And so very early on, I got really, really into the hormonal aspect of it and tried to learn some of the medicine and maintain some of that and, <laughs> and have had some great endocrinology colleagues, um, uh, in particular, John Carmichael, who you know, who we work with here. So I love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've learned a ton from him over the years. So that was kind of how my interests were uh, were honed in hormones and pituitary uh, part of it. Well, before we go jumping into the thrust of this, which is pituitary adenomas and tumors, I got a personal question. You're a new dad. I'm a new dad. I love it. So can can you tell me, because you already mastered like some of this neurosurgery stuff and techniques. What's the hardest part of being a dad? And can you tell everyone the name of your beautiful baby? Sure. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, my baby Harper, our baby Harper is three and a half weeks old now, and uh, she's doing great. Um, uh, this is our first. And uh, the hardest part, um, I am seeing some of my genes from residency being turned on again, um, <laughs> activated and expressed, but that's actually not the hardest part is the sleep deprivation and all that. The hardest part for me is learning for the first time to really try to find that work-life balance between wanting to be home with my growing baby and all my work obligations and many people try to achieve balance, but we never really get there. And if we do, it's fleeting, right? Balance is never something that can be permanently achieved. It's you always have to keep your eye on it. And, and so that's been the hardest part for me is really working towards that and learning. that. Well, you know, baby Harper is really lucky. I can't speak for mom, but I know that she's really lucky to have an awesome dad like you. Okay. And same goes for you and you. <laughs> All right. So now I have to be more, a little more dorky here. Okay. So this is a, a three-part question, but you're smart enough to handle it. What is a pituitary adenoma? And in my notes, I put slash tumor. So where is it? So what is it? Where is it? And I'm confused. What is the difference between an adenoma and tumor? Because I'm using these words interchangeably. And maybe you could kind of correct me. What's the difference? A pituitary adenoma is a benign fairly common tumor that we see in the pituitary gland. Um, They rarely turn into cancers, which is interesting on its own because 
Many other adenomas in the body, colon is a great example, over enough time become carcinomas. But right. in, in the pituitary, they, they tend to be to remain benign. The terms adenoma and tumor are used fairly interchangeably, but a tumor is more of a catch-all phrase that can include some other things. So pituitary adenoma is currently still the designation, although there is a movement now to call them pit net tumors, pituitary neuroendocrine tumors, and there's a lot of pushback. So we won't we won't go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> okay. but, but pituitary adenoma is what we we call it, and that's probably still the most specific right now. So these are fairly benign growths that start in the pituitary gland. They're usually very small and and go unnoticed, but we see them on a common enough basis where they grow large enough or cause enough hormonal issues to become symptomatic, and that's where we would uh, intervene. I think I got all three parts there. Is that you did, but I'm going to parlay it because you know what? I think you mentioned it earlier, but this kind of leads into my next question. If many medical students, when we talk about pituitary tumors, we'll use the catch-all phrase, often ask me, hey, is this a brain tumor? Is it a brain tumor? And that was part of my question about location. Can you kind of explain that? If you just talk about a general category of brain tumors or intrapenial tumors, you'll see it included in there because okay. uh, people will include it in incidences and prevalences of brain tumors, et cetera. So, but technically it does not arise from the brain itself. So it's not considered a brain tumor. So people will say it's a skull-based tumor. Um, it's not located in the brain. The pituitary gland is kind of a lobule that is uh, sticking out from underneath the brain and communicates with the brain, but it's technically not within the brain. And so it's housed in its own little bony area called the cella, but they do grow into the brain. And that's why they're grouped in this catch-all category of brain tumors, even though they're not proper brain tumors. Now, I promised I wouldn't get dorky now, but I got to throw it out there. It's way too Everyone, You said the word cella. You know, when I teach USMLE for my listeners, this is kind of the board exams many students take. Everyone knows the pituitary is in the celica tersica. And if you ask him why is it called the celica tersica, I don't know why they know this, Gabe. They know it's a Turkish saddle. That's right. That, does it even resemble a Turkish saddle? You know, what it I mean? actually does. Uh, not really? that. Everyone, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where, like, who even knows what a Turkish saddle looks like? I know. If, it was, if it wasn't named for that, we wouldn't even <laughs> know that a Turkish saddle existed. But, but they do, and uh, it does resemble that a little bit more than a classic saddle. I guess I, I'll put a Turkish saddle in the show notes so we could laugh about this. But. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you're talking to a patient, though, and they're asked a question, you know, you're trying to describe what's going on. They, I'm sure they, they use a C word quite often. Is it a cancer? Is it a cancer? Or like you said earlier, you clearly make that known right off the bat. Yeah, we, we can usually tell if there's concern for that. But um, over 99% of these tumors are not cancers. And they rarely become cancers. In my entire career of seeing thousands of these, I've seen three or four that have become cancerous. That's how rare it is. Uh, so it does happen um, usually after a prolonged course of treatment, but they're usually not cancers. Let's say someone doesn't ever expect to have one, and it could be, we're going to talk about signs and symptoms, you know what I mean? So what would be some of those early or warning signs to kind of get a patient at least thinking in, their, in a general direction that something is not right? You know what I mean, what would be those signs and symptoms of a pituitary tumor? So when they do present with signs and symptoms, some of the more common things are headaches, um, vision loss, and it's a pretty classically described pattern of vision loss, which is the tunnel vision, the loss of 
peripheral vision, which is in our language is called the bitemporal hemianopsia. You just wanted to say that. I knew it. (laughs) But also hormonal symptoms. And that's where things get really interesting. And it's actually different in men versus women. And um, as I'm sure we'll get into, there's various flavors of pituitary tumors based on the hormones that they're either over-making or or under-making. But um, people can have problems with their pituitary gland if it's being compressed. So in women, that can present as problems with their menstrual periods, if they're still of age, or even mimicking pregnancy sometimes, um, yeah. which is a milky secretion from the breasts known as galactorrhea. In men, it can present as low libido and even erectile dysfunction, along with um, lethargy, fatigue. And then there's the whole other categories of hormonal hypersecretion or or too much hormones, which causes the syndromes of acromegaly and Cushing's disease, as well as potentially high prolactin levels. But those are really interesting diseases caused by high levels of hormones as well. So those are some of the more common presentations. Well, you know, I'm sure you have my notes in front of you because you're so nice. You're like, I'm sure we're going to get into this. And yes, we're going to get into it. So let's let's break them down. I kind of put what I thought would be the ones I want you to talk about for these specific types of pituitary tumors. Let's start off with prolactinoma. How common and what are the symptoms for men and women? Yeah, so um, it's one of the more common pituitary tumors overall. The incidence rate is is somewhere on the order, uh, I believe, of one in 50,000 or so, 25 to 50,000, somewhere around there. And it causes an excess of prolactin. So in women, that can cause elevated milky secretion from the breasts, and it can cause either arresting their menstrual periods if, okay. they're, if they're premenopausal. If they're postmenopausal, they may not notice it as much, but it can, it can result in osteoporosis with a dramatically elevated prolactin level. In men, it generally causes um, things like weight gain and then the erectile dysfunction, loss of sexual libido. Those are the main ones. And then vision loss can be anywhere in those for either men or women. So I, I heard this rumor, and maybe you could clarify it if it's just a rumor, that, you know, when you have the vision problems, which no one wants, the headaches, that it tends to happen in men more than women, epidemiologically. I don't know if it's true. And someone told me the reason why is because women are just on the A-game. You know, something's wrong with their periods or whatever. They go get it worked up or figured out. And like you mentioned, men get kind of like erectile stuff and it gets all kind of like weird. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's Viagra before they get it worked up, you know? Absolutely. You're right. Um, The other factor that plays into that, other than the the periods are a very sensitive marker. So women are more likely, for obvious reasons, they're the only ones who can present with problems with their periods. So uh, the other reason is women tend to have more of the Cushing's type tumors, and those are smaller tumors. So the women tend to present with more hormonal symptoms and smaller tumors in general. And the men tend to present with, as you mentioned, larger tumors and more symptoms of mass effect, which mass effect, that's the pressure on surrounding things, causing the headaches, vision loss, hypopituitarism. So you're absolutely right about that. Well, Uh, give me, give me your record so far. What's the biggest in centimeter size pituitary tumor you've seen? Oh man, I think I've treated about a nine centimeter one, which for us, that's pretty good. It's about bigger than a softball. It's Um, huge. Yeah, Maybe like a, like a, the size of a tiny mini football or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. let's talk about another type, acromegaly. What, what is acromegaly? Can you explain it to the people listening? Sure. I'm very passionate about it too. It's a really interesting disease and its partner, and we often group them together, is gigantism. Mm-hmm. So we, we group acromegaly and gigantism together. And gigantism is 
just what it sounds like being a giant. So, you know, for our listeners here, uh, the people who are giants in the movies and we know Andre the Giant or Jaws mm-hmm. from uh, the James, James Bond, Bond and some basketball players, Yao Min. No, you made that up. Several other ones. Wow. Uh, there are several NBA players mm-hmm. um, who have this. And the difference is the giants usually have these tumors before the end of puberty. So it affects their long, their acral growth and long mm-hmm. bone growth. And acromegaly usually arises after puberty, but they're caused by pituitary tumors that will secrete an excess of growth hormone. And we all have growth hormone. It's what makes us grow. It's what sustains so many growth-related, metabolic-related activities. But in excess, if you're young enough, it will make you grow and shoot up with your height and uh, and several other things. But post-pubertal, if you get acromegaly, um, it will affect so many things. So just kind of a quick list. And I know you know a lot of these, but dental issues, sleep apnea, diabetes, hypertension, growth of, of skin tags and colon polyps and other tumors, heart, cardiomyopathy, yeah. disease, uh, renal disease, changes in your ring size and yeah. shape size, lumbar stenosis, cervical stenosis, arthropathy, mm-hmm. arthritis, so many different diseases are linked and it does reduce your survival time if left untreated. So we consider this a malignant neuroendocrinopathy, even though it's not a malignancy, it's now that's a a classic term for it because can still kill you if left untreated. Now, is it true that if you have acromegaly, you're going in for surgery first and you're using medical stuff second line? Is that still true? That is absolutely true. As long as a patient is safe enough to undergo surgery, um, you know, they, they don't have heart disease that's too advanced with their cardiomyopathy. So okay. if we can put them under anesthesia and get them safely through an operation. Um, surgery is the first line therapy, because in most cases we can get either all the tumor or enough of the tumor out to get those hormones back into a normal category and range and get the acromegaly basically into remission. Okay. If, if surgery on his own is not enough, we're very lucky that our endocrinologists have some pretty good drug options for acromegaly. Now, now which is more common, prolactin, noma, or acromegaly? Prolactinoma is by is, far. Okay. Now, is, I want to talk about one other big one, which is Cushing's, because it's just called Cushing's. Can you just kind of talk about Cushing's disease and what is it? What a patient looks like to the listeners? Sure. Well, uh, and thank you for making that distinction uh, because <laughs> Cushing's disease is different than Cushing's syndrome. Mm-hmm. They're both named after the father of modern neurosurgery, who's a hero of mine, Dr. Harvey Cushing. Oh, I never knew that. Okay. Who was at the Brigham and at Hopkins prior to that and mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and uh, patients with Cushing's, whether it's syndrome or disease, have an excess of cortisol. Mm-hmm. And cortisol is a hormone we need to survive. It's a stress hormone. You can't live without it. But when it's in excess, it wreaks havoc on the human body over chronic periods of time. So kind of going through a a similar checklist, it can cause hair loss um, on the head. But you and I, I don't don't think we have cushions. Way more common in women, though. So about 80 80 to 90 percent of women. But um, hair loss and they actually get coarse, thick hair on their face. Um, so they lose hair on the scalp, but they get, they get hair on the face. Um, gotcha. Acne is another one. Anxiety and depression oh. is very common. Insomnia, yeah. a lot of, a lot of psychiatric issues. Again, uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, thinning of the skin, easy bruising, frequent infections, weight gain, 
lipodystrophy, which is the fat distribution and what they call classically the buffalo hump. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of the neck that uh, now the dorsal fat pad, you know, dorsal fat pad is better. <laughs> yeah. term and the uh, supraclavicular lipodystrophy, yep. the abdominal stria, the, the yep. peripheral edema. Those are some of the very common ones. Uh, that gotcha. we but this can be a disabling disease. Osteoporosis is another one causing fractures. So yep. when it's very advanced, um, people can get lumbar fractures and be wheelchair bound. And I've seen that in patients with very advanced <sighs> Cushing's. It's a terrible disease. How common is Cushing's relative to acro and prolactinoma? So much less common than prolactinomas and a little bit less common than acromegaly. So it's, now, it's one of the lesser common pituitary tumors. Now, speaking of less common, you know, everyone has kind of heard of the thyroid, you know, because a lot of people deal with it. A lot of women deal with it. How come I don't hear much about thyroid pituitary stuff? Am I just not knowing, hearing about it or? Great, great question. Any pituitary tumor can affect thyroid function especially cause hypothyroidism by affecting the normal pituitary gland. And that's, that's common, but you're absolutely right. We almost never see hyperthyroidism or Graves disease caused by pituitary tumors. And in my career, I've seen three, it does happen, but they, okay. those are among the least common of pituitary adenomas. They just, I don't know why, but the TSH cells yep. are less likely to result in an adenoma. And I don't understand why that. All right. And then TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone, everyone. Um, so with all these different types, if someone hurt is listening to this podcast, they have one of these symptoms or concerned about these symptoms, what's the starting point to diagnose these pituitary tumors? Yeah, you'd want to talk to your primary care doctor and uh, they yeah. would do an evaluation of a lot of these things. They could always check some blood work if the story's convincing. And so blood work is a, is a starting point. If people have visual concerns, we recommend seeing an ophthalmologist to do some basic screening testing, including visual fields. But you're right. There's a lot of nonspecific symptoms. You know, when we talk about things like fatigue and uh, headaches, yeah. um, th th these are so nonspecific that it's pretty rare to have those common symptoms and then end up getting diagnosed with a pituitary tumor. But if you're concerned about it, definitely speak with your doctor, okay. let them do the evaluation. If they're concerned They'll send you probably to an endocrinologist would be the next step who could do more focused testing if needed. And if there are any visual or neurological concerns, then an MRI of the brain could be indicated at that time. But that's often based on the visual findings as well. So let me ask you this question. It's kind of like being a surgeon. Are you working th these patients up sometimes from ground zero? Are you usually kind of like getting the consult after the diagnosis is made? And being a surgeon, do you pull the imaging trigger sooner than others because you see what these things can do? So do you get a CT or MI sooner than other people? I am definitely biased because I'm at the end of a long chain of providers at a tertiary care center where we work or quaternary yeah. care center. So almost everyone that comes to me ha already has imaging. And I work very, very closely with John Carmichael, and we, we have a clinic together, which is what's really cool because we actually see patients together. So he will often do more of that screening. We'll, we'll okay. know if someone has biochemical laboratory evidence of Cushing's or acromegaly sometimes before we order the MRI because our practice is combined. But if it was just my practice, almost everyone is sent to me with an MRI already. Talking about treatments, because I put them into three broad categories and you can focus on the ones we spoke about in this podcast, prolactin and acromegaly and, and Cushing's disease. I mean, do most people get medical management? Do most people 
avoid surgery? And is there any role for radiation? Because I've had patients, friends, family who had, you know, gamma knife and it's supposed to be very specific, but there's a lot of side effects once you radiate the brain. So can you just kind of broadly address that? Who gets what? So we talked about three big categories of pituitary tumors, prolactinomas, which is a high prolactin, platins, which is the cortisol one, acromegaly, which is the growth hormone one. And, And the fourth category which is actually the most common category that I treat are um, pituitary adenomas that don't make any hormone. And we call those non-functional ones. And those are the ones that tend to get really big and cause the vision loss and headaches and the hypopituitary. So for us, that's the most common category that we treat surgically, but we see all of these types. And to answer your question, the only one that's treated medically upfront are the prolactin ones. We have really, really good medications, which are called the dopamine agonist agents, which include cabergoline and bromocryptine that have about a a 90% plus effectiveness at treating prolactinoma. So I will rarely have to operate on a prolactinoma, but the other three categories. Yeah, keep on going. I'm like, I'm like taking notes here, dude. The acromegaly, the cushions and the non-functional ones, surgery is first line. Okay. And then- For the Cushing's and acromegaly, we have medications as a second line and radiation is usually reserved for third line therapy. And that is usually, as you mentioned, something like gamma knife, which is very pinpoint focused radiation rather than blasting that whole area that would include maybe the normal pituitary gland and the optic nerves and the brain, as you mentioned, which is what we used to do historically by just really delivering radiation, that whole area in an effort to control the tumor, but living with the fallout and the side effects that can happen, vision loss, pituitary problems. We now use Gamma Knife, which is, has an accuracy down to one millimeter or less. Oh, wow. And so we can really contour and treat these much more safely, avoid the optic nerves and any vision problems, even avoid the normal pituitary gland. So it really is very safe now. And we have about a 30 year track record here at an experienced center like USC in giving radiation, or we call it radio surgery, but it's not really surgery. It's a very, it's pinpoint radiation. So it's very effective and it's really pretty safe overall. So is, is radiation being very overly general? Is it kind of like when you finish your neurosurgery and you're like, Hey, I didn't take everything out. I kind of left something there oops, I need to go in again. Is that when you think about radiation? Uh, yes, that's ac- that's absolutely right. Sometimes these tumors, even though they're not cancers, they can grow into areas that we can't always remove them. And that's called invasion. They invade an area. And when we can't remove them because maybe they're attached to a nerve or the carotid artery, which is yeah. right there, we often end up either leaving a little behind or something will grow back. For someone with Cushing's disease or acromegaly, that's enough for them. To, to even continue their elevation in hormones. So gotcha. um, those would be the indications. Sometimes we've tried medications. Other times we do it in concert with medications and, and we would treat after surgery if there's any residual or recurrent disease. And, and for that Cushing's disease, is it true that for my listeners, I want to make it seem more kind of like, you know, crazy than it really is. Do you guys use this crazy antifungal drugs for like, the Cushing's. We do. And you know what I'm I, talking about? You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Ketoconazole. Yeah. Is, is the classic drug of choice that we sometimes will still use. Um, okay. It's effective mostly in the short term, but it has some nasty side effects. It does. Doesn't it blow up my liver and liver, all that? You know? Yeah, it really gets the liver. Um, yeah. 
So now we have some newer drugs oh, that, cool. are that are better, but they still have some side effects. Some of them cause diabetes, other ones cause hypo, you know, adrenal mm-hmm. issues, et cetera. So they're not perfect, but they're better um, in many ways than the ketoconazole. So truth being told, when you have a pituitary tumor, most of them are non-functional. So you, we just talked about the, the sexy stuff today about hormones and all these presentations. Most of them, they don't secrete hormones. And the ones that don't secrete hormones are more what you're about, which is neurosurgery first. Yes. And even the Cushing's and acromegaline ones are surgical up front because okay. we can cure them if we can get them out or get them into remission. So, so cool. those categories are all surgery first. Only the prolactinomas are not surgical first. The last couple I just got from, I told my students and my listeners, hey, I'm talking to you. They had a couple of questions. So one person, you know, has a relative wanted to know that, my loved one was told the tumor was successfully removed and they want to know why do they still have to have regular visits and blood tests and follow up MRIs if it was successfully removed? And I'm like, I don't know. Let me ask Dr. Zada. <laughs> For one reason is, is we have to prove that they go back into remission and that can take time sometimes. So, so we, we often will follow them. Um, Cushing's can take several months to, to actually go into full remission sometimes. Um, but even more, the bigger reason is that even if they were removed, they can recur. And sometimes we leave microscopic cells behind and that might be enough to grow back. And and the most notorious is Cushing's. That is by far of all the pituitary tumors, the most aggressive subset with the highest predilection for recurrence. And what some people have postulated is that it's some type of abnormal hypothalamic drive involving CRH that causes these cells, the ACTH secreting corticotroph cells, to want to grow or recur or, or something like that. And there've been many cases even where we remove one successfully and a new one will grow on the other side of the pituitary gland, which further supports that hypothesis. But it's because of the recurrence rates being in the 10 to 20% range over about 10 years, that even when you think someone's in remission and there's no evidence of tumor on MRI, it, they can grow back. Wow. Oh, let me be the translator. CRH is corticotropin releasing hormone. It's released by something called the hypothalamus. And what we're saying is that there could be some of that CRH around to stimulate some of that pituitary to get back. Correct. And it's so easy to get dorky here. You know that? <laughs> Here's another question. If someone has a pituitary tumor, would shorten their lifespan? So it can, it definitely can, especially the acromegaly and the cushions. And um, it can take decades off someone's life if left untreated. And we kind of talked about some of the, the ancillary disease that can arise, the heart, the pulmonary, the renal dysfunction, the cancers that can be associated with it. The non-functional ones can also, but it's less likely. They, they tend to cause blindness and hypopituitarism. Occasionally, there will be bleeding into a large pituitary tumor, which can be acute. And that's called, as you know, apoplexy which is a clinical syndrome, not an imaging finding. Uh, it, it's an acute loss of vision and acute um, hypoadrenalism, altered mental status headache, which can happen when these tumors grow large enough to outstrip their blood supply and have acute infarction and bleeding. But the other ones, the Cushing's acromegaly ones can take decades off someone's life. But the good news is if yeah. we can get them back into normal hormone ranges and in remission, we can correct a lot of that and give them a normal survival time. Now, I think this is a good segue into my last question because you are so lucky that you know and are great at what you do and you love pituitary and neurosurgery. So in the individuals out there listening who know someone who 
is going through a pituitary issue, has a pituitary tumor. What are some take home messages you could say to those patients at this point, you know, in general? Yeah. In general, most patients do well. We have good treatments for these tumors. They're not cancers. Make sure you're comfortable with your team. There are centers of excellence where they take team approaches to treat this as a disease, not just as a single one-off mass lesions that needs a surgery and then it's forgotten about. But the team approach, the experience, the high volumes are associated with better outcomes Uh, If you're going through this, uh, chances are you're going to be just fine. We have many, many, many treatment options available for people, and most people do pretty well with these. And once again, great segue to this. Now, I'm sure someone out there is going to want to find you because you're pretty cool, man. And when they find out you look like me, they're going to definitely want to see you, you know? (laughs) I'll I'll tell them I'm your stunt double, don't worry. (laughs) So with that being said, I know you do a little social media. You you put up some cool pictures from the OR. I don't know how you get the permission for that, but uh, (laughs) how can they find you? I'm on Instagram at Dr. Zada, D-O-C-T-O-R-Z-A-D-A, or I can be emailed at at gzada at usc.edu. And if anyone has any questions or just wants to chat about anything, they can reach out anytime. Those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to say, I'm a little sad about to say that this is our episode right here. And oh my God, thank you for being here today. And, you know, I always bump into you in the cafeteria when we're walking. I truly will say, and I'm saying this obviously on my recording, that you're are probably the nicest neurosurgeon I know and your personality when I pass you in the hall is the same way behind the cameras. And I love you for that. Thank you, man. Your enthusiasm is absolutely infectious and we want to do this for a long time. I think um, we just talked and shot the, you know what, we could go on for now. <laughs> this, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for tuning in to the Dr. Raj podcast. You're, I'm glad you love this episode. Stay tuned for another coming soon. Thank you, Dr. Raj. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.